Welcome to the Valley Beit Midrash podcast, a program of Valley Beit Midrash, a global center of learning and action. We're bringing you the best in diverse, pluralistic Jewish wisdom, all with the goal of improving lives in our global community. I'm Rabbi Shmuley Yanklowitz. Let's get started. Shalom Aleichem, beautiful friends. It's great to see you all. Thank you for being here. I'm so sorry for the delay. Um, we were just talking about how uh, in this era of America, in this COVID era, we um, uh, have so many flight delays. And so uh, that was our <laughs> late start today. But I'm sorry if that threw off your schedule at all. We are here to talk about Rodev Shalom pursuing peace as class 17 out of 40 in our Pearls of Kindness to think about how we can rebuild the world through chesed every day, every opportunity to infuse kindness into the world, to not only lift a spirit or assist at a time of pain or suffering, but to actually be a partner with the divine to bring healing and um, and and complete the process of creation of the world. So friends, let's start with a poll. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this question with pursuing peace. I mostly choose to stay in peace and quiet. I mostly choose to engage in conflict and drama. <laughs> I, I try to balance engaging with peace and conflict. With peace and with conflict. Okay. Do you like to stay in peace and quiet? Do you like to get engaged with conflict and drama? Or do you try to balance these two? Let's see what we got here. Give you another second to vote. Okay. Let's see our results. Okay. 14% uh, prefer to remain in the peace and quiet. No one here um, just lives for conflict and drama, although maybe they're not admitting it. <laughs> and 86% like the balance. Eileen, welcome back. Good to see you. <laughs> and thank you. Thank you all of you for being here. Um, so, uh, so friends, in chapter 10, we discussed Shalom Bait, peace in the home. And now we're going to explore on a similar but different theme, Rodev Shalom, pursuing peace more broadly. The rabbis teach that the greatest of heroes is one who turns an enemy into a friend. That's a complicated idea from Avot de Rabbi Natan. After all, it does say in the Torah, when you encounter your enemy's axe or donkey wandering, you must take it back to him or her. When you see your enemy's donkey sagging under its burden, 
and would otherwise refrain from raising it, you must nevertheless raise it with them. The Talmud goes even further. If the animal of a friend needs unloading and an enemy's needs unloading, you shall first help your enemy in order to discipline your yetzer hara, your evil inclination. Again, a very complicated idea. The rabbis suggest that this has actually worked. Here's what it says in the Tanhuma. Rabbi Alexandri said two donkey drivers who hated each other were traveling along the same road. The donkey of one of them fell down. The other saw it but passed him by. After he had passed by, the other said, it is written in the Holy Scriptures if you see your enemy's donkey. Forthwith, he went back to help him with the load. The other began to think things over and said, so-and-so is evidently my friend, and I didn't even know it. The two went into a roadside inn and had a drink together. What led them to make peace? One of them looked into the Torah. Okay, friends, so here we see a case uh, where this actually works from the rabbis. If this is true for enemies, how much more so should it be true for those who are not our enemies? We do not wait passively to resolve tensions, but move eagerly towards them. Rabbi Chaim of Velazhin, the great late 18th and early 19th century of the century thinker, taught, when it says seek peace, it means that you should want there to be peace between you, even if, in your opinion, the other person uh, harmed you. Nevertheless, you should pursue it. You should be the Rodev Shalom, the pursuer of peace, rather than waiting for the other to reconcile with you first. You can be the one to initiate. So what's the psychological work involved here? The Torah instructs us not to hold grudges. You shall not take revenge, nor shall you bear a grudge against the members of your people, it says over there in Leviticus 19.18. The Rambam elaborates. You shall blot any offenses against you out of your mind and not bear a grudge. For as long as one nurses a grievance and keeps it in mind, one may come to take vengeance. The Torah therefore emphatically warns us not to bear a grudge, so that the impression of the wrong shall be completely obliterated and not no longer remembered. This is the correct principle, for it alone makes civilized life and social interaction possible. I saw a nice Facebook post this morning from David Wolpe, uh, and I want to make a plug for our in-person event, in, in addition to um, uh, Zoom, of course, um, with Rabbi Wolpe in just a few months, right after the holidays. And he made a nice Facebook post saying, when someone is offending you, think of yourself as a baseball batter, right? As a batter, you, you don't swing at most pitches, right? You don't swing at most pitches. Think about that also when someone is offending you. Is this is this a pitch worth swinging at? Um, I thought that was kind of a nice way to, he said, a kind of a nice way when someone's offending you to kind of think of yourself as a batter. Do I wish to, to swing at this or not? Another teaching of Rambam gets to the heart of what the entire Torah is ultimately about. Here's what he says over here um, in his Mishnah Torah. If such a poor person has to choose between oil for both a house lamp on Shabbat and a Hanukkah lamp or oil for a house lamp on Shabbat and wine for the Kiddush, the house lamp should have priority for the sake of peace in the household, right? That's why we light Shabbat candles, Shalom Bait. We talked about that uh, in class 10. 
seeing that even a divine name may be erased to make peace between husband and wife. Great indeed is peace, for as much as the purpose for which the whole of the Torah was given is to bring peace upon the world. As it is said, its ways are ways of pleasantness, and all its paths are peace. That's why I started with that melody earlier, which we sing before we put the Torah away on Shabbat morning, which includes that phrase right there. And so, friends, um, this is pretty radical what the Rambam just said. The Rambam just said the entirety of the Torah is given mipnei darchei shalom, in order that there's peace in the world. So some people might feel like, ah, oh, I, I, I do humanitarian work over here, my justice work, my social action work over here. And over here, I've got this thing called religion. It's nostalgic. I go to Pesach Seder. I like the melodies. It's like a very different plane of existence. Ah, Rambam says, ah, if you're doing Torah, you're doing world peace, right? The kind of Torah we participate in is one that fosters world peace, right? And if, and if our Torah is not fostering peace, we're doing Torah wrong. We're doing religion wrong. If religion causes strife and division and intolerance and hate, that's not Torah. That's not Judaism. We've, we've perverted what we're doing. And so um, the Rambam says, we have to make sure that when we're engaged in Jewish practice, that we have the kavanah, we have the intentionality, that actually it's bringing us closer together rather than pulling us, pushing us apart. Now we might then think we should stand for nothing because as soon as I stand for something, it's going to be polarizing, right? Oh, I stand for immigrant rights. You stand for border security. Oh, we disagree. We need to be in a different shul. No, opposite. Opposite. We can have peace with disagreement. We disagree. So let's talk about it. Let's learn about it. We can still pray together. We can still eat together, right? Um, and so um, that might feel harder when it's the issue close to heart, your heart, right? Maybe there's a, a primary issue for you uh, in race or in gender or in uh, economic justice or the like, anti-Semitism or Israel. Maybe there's your primary issue, like that issue, if you're against me, I'm not, I'm not in relationship with you. But okay, but okay, we like we have to um hold a bigger space than that. And so Rambam says, Torah fosters peace. And that's a type of peace that is a shalom bite that keeps us, that keeps us together, uh, not in agreement, but also in disagreement. And so for many, Darche Shalom, the ways of peace, means that we should support Gentiles even in, and perhaps especially in, eras and cultures with enormous anti-Semitism, simply to save ourselves. Get it? Darche Shalom, the ways of peace, means um, we support Gentiles even when they hate us. Why? Because if we don't support them, they'll hate us more. So if others continue to accuse us of only being for ourselves, one of the top five mantras of anti-Semites, uh, tropes of anti-Semites, is Jews only care about Jews. And so Jews are very insecure about helping Jews. Ugh, if, if I'm Jewish and I help a Jew, I'm, it's going to look really bad. I have to show that I, I care about all people. But that's very weird. That's a very weird, uh, that's a very weird idea. But the anti-Semitism has kind of gone, you know, gone into our psyche that we feel like if I'm a Jew and I'm helping a Jew, I'm doing something wrong, right? And so if others continue to accuse us of being only for ourselves, it will fuel their fires of hatred and violence toward us. But the Rambam goes further. And he says we follow Darche Shalom not for a practical survivalistic reason of not being killed, but for a deep theological and moral reason. Here's what he says. Even with respect to Goyim, in respect to the nations, the rabbis bid us visit their sick 
bury their dead along with the dead of Israel and maintain their poor with the poor of Israel in the interest of peace. But here's the interesting thing. He doesn't now say because they're going to come to hate us. He says, as it's written, the, the Lord is good to all. All God's tender mercies are upon all God's works. As it is also written, its ways are ways of pleasantness and all its paths are peace. And so there we see, why does the Rambam say we have to do the paths of peace even to people who hate us, who people hate Jews? Not because they're going to kill us, but because God, Shalom is a name of God. Shalom is one of the names of God. And we want to emulate um, the divine pathway towards peace. We love the image of God in people, even when they don't love us. And so we pursue peace for its own sake, right? Um, it, it, it reminds me, I was on this committee once. There was this big earthquake in Iran like 20 years ago. And the Jewish community organized a ton of money for humanitarian relief for like tens of thousands of victims in Iran. And what did Iran say? We don't want your dirty Jewish money, right? And we had this big debate. Do we lie and say the money's not from Jews? Um, and just because saving life is more important? Or do we say, you don't want our money? Forget it. There's plenty of other humanitarian causes. And many people on this committee said, forget them. They're trying to kill. They're trying to wipe out Israel. They're trying to kill Jews, right? They have anti, they're, 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 they're spreading anti-Semitism. They're turning down our humanitarian funds. They don't want it. Let's go help someone else. And the other argument was, you know what? It's the people up top saying that. Let's go through the back door and, and lie and say it's not Jewish money and try to get it to the people who need it anyways. It was a very interesting debate. Aside from meaning peace, Shalom, as mentioned, is also a name of God. And so we pursue peace so that we can emulate a loving, peaceful God, the Rambam teaches. We are to pursue peace within the home, within communities, and within society at large. A very well-known verse from Tehillim, from Psalms, speaks to this idea of pursuing peace. May there be peace within your walls, serenity within your palaces. Translated this way, this verse is a prayer, a hope, an aspiration. There, but there's another way to read this verse. If you wish for there to be peace within your walls, referring here to the city walls, there must be peace within your palaces. In other words, the well-known adage is correct. Peace begins in the home. First, we must make every effort towards shalom bayit, peace in the palace. We must ensure that we have peace on a micro level. Only then can we be impactful in pursuing peace on a macro level. And so, friends, it can be powerful to just be a truth speaker. I speak truth to power. I don't care what anyone thinks about me. I'm authentic. But it can often be wiser to be a pursuer of peace than just a truth speaker. Sometimes we must learn to hold our truths a little looser for the welfare of others. This is virtually um, a lost virtue today um, in many ways, as so many are not willing to budge on anything at all that they feel is right, right? Truth over peace. When it comes to war, Judaism at its core should neither be read as hawkish nor as totally pacifist. It'd be hard to read the Torah either way. There is a right and duty of self-defense, but also a duty of restraint. We yearn for messianic times of no violence, about which Isaiah famously foretells, the wolf shall dwell with the lamb. <laughs> I, wonder how the, I wonder how they actually got that image. Obviously, Photoshop. 
but or maybe these two are just the anomaly. Maybe maybe peace has come already. And uh, of which Micah Micha similarly teaches: nation shall not lift up sword against nation; they shall never again know war. It says that, of course, on the Isaiah wall um, over there across the United Nations. We do a lot of protests over there um, at, next to the United Nations. But until then, we will need to figure out how to survive in a world of violence. And so in reality, the Torah even instructs us to engage in offensive wars, not only defensive wars, but as seen below, peace is built into the offensive charge. Here's what it says over here in um, Deuteronomy. These are some of the troubling texts of our tradition for some. When you approach a town to attack it, i.e. offensively, you shall offer it terms of peace. If it responds peaceably and lets you in, all the people present there shall serve you as forced labor. If it does not surrender to you, but engages in battle with you, you shall lay siege to it. And when the Lord your God delivers it into your hand, you shall put all its males to the sword. You may, however, take as your booty the women, the children, the livestock, and everything in the town, all its spoils, and enjoy the use of the spoil of your enemy, which the Lord your God gives you. The rabbis emphasize here how serious this call for peace in Deuteronomy just quoted must be. Here's what it says in the Midrash. God commanded Moshe to make war on Sichon, but he did not do so. God said to him, have I commanded you to make war on Sichon, but instead you begin with peace? By your life, I will confirm your decision. Every war upon which Israel enters, they shall begin with an attempt to bring peace. As it is said, when you come near to a city to fight against it, then pro proclaim peace unto it. In another famous and perhaps disturbing biblical text, we see just how seemingly violent God's demand can be. Here's what it says over here in Shemuel, the book of which I'm named after the book of Samuel. Samuel says to Saul, the first king, thus said the Lord of hosts, I am exacting the penalty for what Amalek did to Israel, for the assault he made upon them on the road, on their way up from Egypt. Now go attack Amalek and prescribe all that belongs to him. Spare no one, but kill alike men and women, infants and sucklings, oxen and sheep, camels and asses. Saul destroyed Amalek. He prescribed all the people, putting them to the sword. But Saul and the troops spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the oxen. The word of the Lord then came to Shmuel, I regret that I made Saul king, for he has turned away from me and has not carried out my demands, my commands. As Shmuel turned to leave, Saul seized the corner of his robe and it tore one of like, the most um, kind of picturesque moments in the whole book of Samuel. And Samuel says to him, the Lord has this day torn the kingship over Israel away from you and has given it to another who is worthier than you. So friends, this is a really troubling text. The first king of Israel is stripped of his kingship because he shows mercy to the enemy, because he's not willing to wipe them out completely as commanded. Um, and thus he is deemed unworthy to be the king. Who, who is his successor? Of course, 
his son-in-law, King David. The second king of Israel is King David. And he will be unworthy for building the temple for the opposite reason. There's too much blood on his hands. There's too much blood on his hands, so he's not allowed to build the temple. So who builds the temple? The third king of Israel, who is David's son. Not the one you think would be, uh, but one of his youngest sons, Solomon, King Solomon. And so King Saul is stripped for not being violent enough, so to speak. Um, we're going to have to unpack that. King David for being too bloody, and King Solomon for being wise, and a person perhaps more committed to peace and justice, a balance, in a sense. So the rabbis were not the only ones to struggle with this text. The rabbis who reinvent Judaism, the rabbis also struggled with this text. They say over here in the Talm in the Babylonian Talmud, and he, Saul, fought Amalek in the valley. Rabbi Mani said, because of what happens in the valley, when the Holy One be blessed, said to Saul, now go and strike down Amalek. Saul said, if on account of one person, the Torah said, perform the ceremony of the cow whose neck is to be broken. How much more ought consideration to be given to all these persons? And if human beings sinned, what have the cows done? Right? He's right. Saul in the, in the rabbinic imagination doesn't want to kill these people, certainly doesn't want to kill the animals. And if the adults have sinned, what did the children do? I'm going to kill innocent adults. I'm going to kill innocent children. I'm going to kill innocent animals. A divine voice came forth and said, be not righteous over much. <laughs> Don't be so just, it comes and says. Even built into the laws of Shabbat, we learn how instruments of war and violence are to be viewed. This is a great debate. So as, as many of you know, there is a traditional prohibition against, um, uh, against carrying in public. So traditional Jews um, only carry in public when there's an Eruv, right? Um, I was just at Ethan's beautiful complex where he's sitting now, and the builder of that complex showed me, or maybe Ethan showed me, I don't remember, one of the two of you showed me an Eruv right across the street. There's a rope right across the street where, uh, from Sloan Lake. Um, where you can see this kind of rabbinic legal construction uh, of turning a public space into a private space. So here's what it says over here. Kind of, this is where uh, the rabbis are debating ritual, but really they're debating ethics. Here's what it says. A person should not go out on Shabbat, not with a sword or a bow or a shield or a mace or a spear. And if they did, they are liable for a sin offering, right? Because they carried in public. Rabbi Eliezer says they are just an adornment for him, like jewelry, right? You're allowed to wear jewelry if you're wearing earrings. You're not. You're not carrying them. You're wearing them, right? And so you can wear jewelry without an eruv traditionally. But the sages say they, the instruments of war, are a disgrace. For the verses say in Isaiah, as we already quoted, they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into prunilks. Weapons are bad. Nation shall not take up sword against nation, nor shall they train for war anymore. Right? So what are they talking about? On the surface level, they're talking about the laws of carrying on Shabbat. But really what they're talking about is what is a weapon? Is a weapon a beautiful thing like an earring? Right? 
that when I wear my sword in public, I'm showing something that looks nice, right? When I have a bow, I'm showing something that demonstrates the pride of our people. Or am I carrying something disgusting, albeit sometimes necessary, but fundamentally something sad and, and, and you know, um, an instrument of death, um, ultimately? That's what they're debating. If, it, if, it's a, if, it's, if it's an adornment, you can carry it. If it's not, you can't carry it. And so the rabbis there are trying to identify what this weapon fundamentally is. While we, while we all may dream of a pacifist utopia, after the Holocaust, we can never again be so naive. Rabbi Dr. Yitz Greenberg writes, the Holocaust made manifest a fundamental shift in the balance of power between victims and aggressors. Thanks to the extraordinary concentrations of power made possible by modern cultural technology and science, forces of evil have unlimited power available to carry out their designs. Death now has the capacity to stamp out life. The lesson of the Holocaust was that in the face of overwhelming concentration of power, acts of self-sacrifice and spiritual demonstrations had little or no effect on the murderers. Classic moral traditions, martyrdom in Judaism, Sadagrapha in Hinduism, the cross and turning the other cheek in Christianity were shattered in the Holocaust. Nor did the norms developed by modern society, humanitarianism, liberalism, universal rights, rule of law, protect the Jews. Nor did established sources of aid to victims, religion, or taboos on killing prove any more capable of blunting the force of the Nazis' murderous fury. Only the transfer of power to potential victims, power enough to defend themselves, can correct the new imbalance of power. The state of Israel was designed to place power in the hands of Jews, to shape their own destiny, and to affect or even control the lives of others. Creating the state meant that Jews took on major responsibility for saving their own lives. With, the, with this decision, use of prayer alone or Torah study alone, heretofore the pillars of authentic Jewish response, henceforth became an evasion of covenantal responsibility. If one seeks out one moment that symbolizes the transi transition, it might well be the Haganah drafting able-bodied males in Meisharim, a Haredi ultra-Orthodox neighborhood, to build defenses for the old city in the Battle of Jerusalem in 1948. And so here, Yitz argues that in a post-Holocaust era, it is a sin to be powerless, right? Power is not a bad word. Power has to be used responsibly. And it is a sin in a world um, that where we now understand that the modern notion of inevitable progress is shattered, um, uh, that, um, that we can be powerless, that actually um, we need to make sure that the less privileged um, have access to power. And yet, and yet, David Hartman emphasizes how much we must not build this state of Israel to be like other states. Here's his warning. Israel is not a return to a religious or political ghetto where Jewish particularity and universality conflict. 
where symbolic religious ritual and the passion for social justice are unrelated expressions of loyalty to traditional Judaism. Israel represents the birth of a healthy society that seeks to create a nation like all other nations. The the demythologization of the Jewish people is one of the great gifts of Israeli society to the Jewish people. So friends, it is easy, albeit painful, to be powerless. But to have power is equally very difficult, as one now has enormous responsibilities both to protect oneself and one's people, while also showing enormous restraint and pursuing peace. Everyone with power will ultimately fail. Right? If you're powerless, you just blame the people in power. You say power ultimately corrupts. Everyone with power is corrupt, right? Because it's easy to be powerless. It's painful, but easy. You just blame the people with power, right? Um, so everyone with power will ultimately fail. But to be a Jew means that we cannot tolerate our own failure. We must defend ourselves. And at the same time, we must be total lovers of peace. For to love peace and pursue peace is one of the greatest demands in emulating the ways of God. And so to conclude, let us be like our own, who are about whom we are taught in Pirkei Avot. Hillel said, be among the students of our own who loved peace and pursued peace. He loved all creatures and drew them near to the Torah. And in fact, we are at the Parsha of our own's death. And so in his memory, may we also be road, road face shalom. Okay, holy friends, I'd love to hear from you. Me first, then. <laughs> Hi, Aglaya. Okay, um, I just wanted to like um, see throw this out there, just a question about um, uh, like how much wiggle room do we have for also the word kill to mean you know many different things, you know, just um, like I mean. I don't know if I'm going to phrase this the right way though, but there are there are more ways to have wars than just, you know, a bunch of people like killing each other. There are other ways to wage war. That's all. Um, So I understood your first point of like, what does kill mean? I'm not sure I understood your final point where you said there's other ways to wage war other than. That's what I'm kind of curious about. The reason why is because I'm curious about other ways to wage war. Go on the offensive. Oh, okay. Okay. So I think this is, okay. I think we're on the same page. So, Yes. Yeah, so we know that one of the Ten Commandments is low tier tzach, mm-hmm. do not kill. Mm-hmm. And we know there are exceptions to that. Let me give a controversial example. Okay. You must, so today we use the, the word rodef, which mm-hmm. means pursuer. We are commanded, well, there's, the, the, according to many views, we are commanded to kill a rodef. A rodef is a violent pursuer. Who is called a rodef? Of a fetus who places a mother's life at risk. Mm-hmm. That fetus is not called a life. It's called a rodef. It's called a violent pursuer of the mother. And you have to go and kill that rodef. Now, kill it is the wrong word because kill means it's a life, right? But you have to um, disembody, let's say. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it's actually kind of a violent image, uh, but you know, to avoid a trigger alert, I'll kind of uh, avoid the kind of, you know, uh, language that's used over there. Um, But, um, and so there's three views. If someone um, enters your home who you deem to be violent, 
either um, either you must strike them to defend yourself, or um, you should not, but if you do, you're not liable, um, or you can. Not that you must, but you can. And so those are the three views around this self-defense around Rodif. And so, lo tirzach, do not kill in the Ten Commandments in the Aserita Debrot, of course, is qualified through many other uh, imperatives. When, when can we kill? When must we kill um, as it relates to war? Now, in the halachic literature on war, there's milchemet reshut, a war that you don't have to wage but you may. There's milchemet mitzvah, which is kind of a, perhaps the most troubling category. It's kind of a holy war, a holy war, so to speak. It's a commanded war. Um, and then of course, there's the, there's, there's the, um, there's the defensive war of pikuach nefesh, of saving life. Um, so what, what, what's a category today where we might call, um, you know, um, uh, a holy war? we might say America entering World War II. Mm-hmm. America didn't need to enter World War II. Uh, many historians suggest the war was already over. The Soviets had kind of destroyed on the Eastern Front the Nazis enough. In, in American history books, we make it sound like America was the, was the, you know, the hero of the whole story. <laughs> um, but <laughs> it may be more complicated, uh, of course. And, um, and so, uh, but nonetheless, the idea of fighting Nazis um, not that any of us want to do that, but um, could be described as a holy war, you know, like to liberate concentration camps and, and the like. And so, um, and so too, we can imagine cases today. Now, 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 um, things are very complicated. Um, when you look at a Russia, you you know, versus Ukraine, um, few of us are total pacifists or total hawks on that. The total hawks who say, regardless of the consequence with Russia. We, we must back Ukraine fully, even if it leads to World War III. I know a few people who are, are that hawkish. And I know, so, I know few people who are so pacifist who think we should do nothing to aid Ukraine, um, lest Russia be agitated, given that most uh, Americans, of course, side with the, uh, uh, the, the, the um, I was going to say alleged victim, but I'll just leave alleged out, the victim of Ukraine. Uh, you didn't, there was um, a discussion on a listserv for one of the schools I teach for, and it just went on for 80 some odd messages of just ridiculousness over this. So, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> yeah. And so this mm-hmm. stuff is very complicated. This stuff, of course, is very complicated. Anyways, long story short um, is um, in regards to war. Now, um, we now to just last point on this, <clears throat> we know that warfare is rarely going to uh, call is rarely going to include what we used to halakhically call a kind of hand on hand um combat, yes. right? Sticking a sword into a person on a battlefield. Now mm-hmm. we have cyber warfare, now we have pandemic warfare where people can poison waters. Uh, people can spread pandemics intentionally, perhaps, mm-hmm. by which I'm not, by the way, saying um, that it's all a Chinese conspiracy, uh, you know, as to why Thank we have the pandemic. That, that, that's, that, that's not the argument I'm making here. Um, we have a whole, we have warfare by drone. We have, um, we have warfare by plane. And so, um, and so the, what we used to call uh, murder, killing, 
is actually not the type of killing we have in warfare today. Okay, lots more to say. Eileen, over to you. Thank you. Um, I'm on an iPhone and I'm not sure how to work all this stuff. That's okay, we're with you. All right, I wanted to comment about the idea of power. And yes, absolute power corrupts absolutely. And I think all we have to do is look at our current political situation and see where people have decided that they want to go into politics, not for service, but for the ability to gain power. And by gaining power, gaining all of the concomitant factors that go with it. Yes, great, great. Thank you for that. Um, and that reminder, um, that we could take a cashbone every day. There, there was a, uh, a self-accounting every day. There was a great article in the New York Times on, on Shabbat. Um, and it was about how, what we're doing to students on college in America today. And what we're doing is throwing opportunities at them, opportunities, without actually, anyone read this? It's a great article. Without actually helping them to pursue the questions of the purpose of their life right? Here's a great opportunity of a job, a great opportunity of an internship, a great opportunity to study abroad. And, and they're just pursuing ambition, pursuing opportunities, as opposed to pausing, like, wait a minute, what am I pursuing and why, right? What is the good life, right? I'm not just chasing ambition or power or wealth, right? What is the, what is the good life I'm actually pursuing? And one of the things we can do when we're about to pursue a new endeavor is say, why am I pursuing this? It's okay to pursue it for wealth. It's okay to pursue it for, for reputation. It's okay to pursue it for pleasure, right? But we should be very aware of what we're pursuing and why. And many people don't have that self-awareness to even engage in a process. Why am I living the way I'm living? Why am I choosing what I'm choosing to do each day? And so, um, and so this, this issue of, of those who are, are power hungry, and those who are doing literally climbing um, hierarchies, climbing ladders, simply because of this psychological need for power. Now, let me offer one other idea before we go to Sarah here, which is um, that in modernity, we believed there was a binary called the powerful and the powerless, called the, um, the, uh, the rich and the poor, called the, what, what do you call them in France again? Uh, or what do you call them in Marx? Uh, the bourgeois and yeah, the, the bourgeoisie and the proletariat. Yeah, thank you. The bourgeoisie and the and the proletariat and and what and um. Anyways, there's a few different uh, a few different languages I'm 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 thinking about here. But in any case, we, we get the point. You have a French Revolution. There's two sides, and the two sides are pretty clear, right? Um, you know, and so um, then comes postmodernity, and someone named Michel Foucault emerges. And said, Foucault says, whoa, you're, you're deceiving people here. You think, um, you think power is, is one dimensional, is, one, is unidirectional? Um, actually, there's multiple forms of power and power is multidirectional. And anyone who is claiming to be powerless is deceiving you. And anyone who's claiming to be power, all powerful is also deceiving you because um, people are a lot less powerful than they may claim to be and a lot less powerless than they may claim to be. And so we have to understand there's multiple forms of power um, that are involved in any moment. 
Um, so anyways, let me um, let me just acknowledge that point there as well. Yeah, hi, Sarah. Hi. Uh, so there's so many things to address at this point. Um, it sounds basically like not only is power multidimensional, but perhaps what our role is, is to pursue power with others and to find that extraordinary balance so that we're neither on offense or defense, that mm -hmm. we are in peace, mm -hmm. um, mostly with self so that we can be in that space with others. But I, I was really fascinated by the notion of RODEF and how one defines that and what subjectivity falls uh, into that definition of that violent uh, pursuer, because so many of us see that all around us and live in fear and hence a sense of aggression because we're afraid. So I'm more curious to expand that notion and how we use it and how we redefine it so that we can be in power with that pursuer. Wow, wow. So um, thank you for that, Sarah. So there, there were a number of things there. Just so I understand your second, um, your, 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 your second point there, um, uh, uh, if you'll flesh that out just a little bit more around this issue of uh, how we relate to the RODIF. Well, when we say that someone is a RODEF, is a violent pursuer, what I define as a violent pursuer may indeed be that aggressor whose aggression I shouldn't even swing at. Going back to your notion yeah, of the bladder. Right, right, and right. I loved that right. idea of, mm -hmm. you know, knowing when to swing and when not to swing. Yeah. So right. it, seeing that Rodef as a bad pitch, as yes. opposed uh, to uh, uh, great, great, the one great. that needs to be hit right out of the park. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Yeah. That is a, um, that has got to be one of the, uh, deepest forms of emotional intelligence. And unfortunately, I'm concerned that those who are um, oftentimes in charge of um, weapons uh, are, are not necessarily holding that emotional intelligence around. Just if you look at issues of like police brutality, as an example, like when is this person who actually may be, let, let's bracket the obvious case of someone who's not acting at all violently. It's only um a racial profiling or, or, the, or but somebody actually is acting aggressively right when do i match their aggression or exceed their aggression um how do i um you know or take a case of um uh a an abusive parent and then child um services comes in um and also engages in what may be at times deemed an act of violence of kind of breaking this family apart, you know, or take the case of a threat made by a foreign nation. Like when Iran says, we're going to bomb you, Israel. Like, when do you take that threat seriously? You know, and when do you say, ah, you know, this is all talk. When is a bully all talk? 
their bark is, you know, louder than the, you know, strong, what's the phrase stronger than the bite or louder than the bite, whatever it is, you, you get the point. Um, and when do we actually take threats really seriously? Um, so that is a great, that is a great point. And I'm curious how other people would engage with Sarah's great point around which, which pitches do we swing at as it appears from a Rodafe today? And um, alongside that, like, when are we, um, when are we violently responding to the violent Rodef? And when are we the Rodef Shalom? When are we the pursuer of peace? Now, some might say you can only boo that Rodef Shalom, that pursuer of peace before the pitch is thrown, right? Once the pitch is thrown, you can just react to that ball coming at you, right? Um, so that's kind of something to think about. Now, just to go to your first point, then I want to open it up on your second Um Here's a here's a space where we can think about the multi-dimensional nature of, of power. Um, sometimes in a relationship, um, just take a, um, a, mar a marital relationship for the moment, there may be one partner who we deem to be more aggressive. Aggressive might feel like too intense of a word, but a, a more assertive, more confrontational. Um, however, it may also be that the other party is passive aggressive, right? Um, there may be someone who articulates a form of aggression and another who kind of uses aggression differently. There's different ways to kind of demonstrate power in, in conflicts. And we can become aware of that, um, you know, in various, in various ways. Okay, Lauren, let's go to Lauren here. Hi. Um, just the term of, you know, when do you take it seriously? As Jews, we got to take it seriously. When someone says, I want to kill Jews, believe them. We've seen it too often in our history. So, you know, make peace when you can. But if someone's truly, truly after, after you, wants to kill you, you got to take it seriously. You got to defend yourself. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's it. Thanks, Lord. <laughs> Thanks, Lord. Yep. Okay, can I just jump in here? Okay. Yes, please. All right. Um, I'm going to say that I have to agree with Lauren because um, just um, considering what I, where I live, um, I don't, there, there are a lot of things about my own neighborhood that make me feel unsafe. Um, that said, um, if I wanted to bring in moral relativism also, um, a lot of the time though, the road deaf thinks you're the road deaf. So that has to be taken into consideration. Now, when the day when we found out um, Putin invaded Ukraine, I had to turn, I, I had to give up my lecture and turn my class into a group therapy session. Okay, that happens to a lot of us sometimes. Mm -hmm. And, you know, these young men were just scared that they were gonna get drafted. I mean, they were just like, it, their minds went one to the next to the next. And I just said, wait a minute, kids, hold on, hold on. First of all, the likelihood that you're gonna get drafted is like a slim to none, first of all. And second, they said, okay, you cannot, you are, going from one thing to the next, to the next, to the next. Right now, this is the information we have. Stick with what we have for right now. That's what you can deal with for right now. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. Thank you for that. Thank you for that. And, you know, in thinking a little bit, building off one of those points of how the Rodef thinks the other is the Rodef, to some degree also, we know psychologically that um, some people who have only known conflict or known aggression actually are seeking to find their stability within that space. And so the perpetuation of such um, uh, violence feels like 
that safe place. They're under, they're, they're, they're under attack. There's that threat there. And so we know that part of this work of pursuing external peace has to start internally for us to learn how to feel safe within uh, ourselves, mm -hmm. safe with uh, a sense of, of, of inner peace where we're not looking to wreak havoc, um, perpetuate, perpetuate the, the, the kind of turmoil externally that we feel internally. Uh, yes. Hi, Toby. Good morning. I, what a great discussion. Um, I, I think Sarah's point is really well taken as an individual. If you're being bullied as a kid and you're a kid, how do you really have a, a grasp of when, when is this bullying just kidding around and when is it, um, you know, life-threatening or safety-threatening? Um, and, and that doesn't stop when you stop being a kid. Right. You know, all of us have individually, I'm guessing, all of us have come into contact with bullies in our work. Right. I certainly have, prosecutors and judges, they're called. Um, and, and they're not not—they're not being reasonable. And I think it was Sarah who said, when do you know? You know, first of all, the, the quote that I have from a, a guy who was involved in uh, all the Iraq wars, uh, <laughs> Is, is that a hill worth dying on? Mm -hmm. You know, same thing as the back worth swaying and whatever. Um, and if you, if you think about that in your, before you say something or before you make your pitch or whatever, um, if you say, is this a hill worth dying on? That's, that's a way to sort of um, separate the match from the flame as the Musar folks would say, right. you know? Yeah. Um, and you know, do you have a reasonable belief that your life is being threatened? And I, I mean, that's the legal standard, but it's also the, the moral standard, I think. Is this a Great. reasonable? Beautiful, beautiful. You know, um, you know, to extend that converse, uh, powerful conversation that Toby's bringing up to the book of Jonah for a moment. Um, as we, as most of us know, um, Jonah is asked to go tell the people of Nineveh to repent, right? This is what we read this on Yom Kippur. And he runs the other way. And there's lots of different ways to interpret his fleeing. But one of the interpretations of his fleeing from the commentators is that actually the city of Nineveh, the Assyrian Empire, is anti-Semites. They, they, they were killing Jews. They want to kill Jews. For him to save them would be to save the people who's then going to kill the Jews. Why would he go save them? Right? And so what? And so um, the, the, the conversation emerges there around, are, are we so naive? That when, the, that when they claim repentance, to believe it, right? And as Jews, are we the people of second chances, give them a second chance? Or are we people who are not naive and understand human nature to mean that people who say they want to kill you, even if they for a moment say they're not, are going are gonna to do it? And so that's a difficult um, that's a difficult view into human nature. And I'm sure we all have our own le leanings from our own backgrounds and upbringings. Perhaps if you're the child of survivors, for example, you might have a very different leaning. Um, but that is something for us to be introspective around. Around um, do we think people who have done evil can be trusted when they claim they're no longer going to do that? And as Toby knows um, from from her criminal justice work, like. At what point, after how many decades in prison, like what does somebody actually have to demonstrate, you know, to be like, this is not a threat to society. This person has clearly demonstrated after being incarcerated for five years or 25 years that they're not a threat. 
Yes, they did this horrific thing 30 years ago. At least they were found guilty to have done that. Um, but they're not a threat, you know? And so how, when do we, when, when a country is stripped of their right to have weapons because of something they've done, when are they allowed to have, you know, be weaponized again? Um, um, you know, when is an ex-felon allowed to be a gun owner again? So these are difficult questions. Okay, let's hear from someone we haven't heard from yet, Ethan or Eric or Gary or Alex or Francine or Eddie, and then we can circle back to folks who have spoken. Uh, Rabbi, I would be yeah. happy to share. I um, mentioned in the chat, you know, one of the things that I think about is, you know, we brought up the topics of anti-Semitism um, and other inherent atrocities that sometimes hit us in the face and we have to act. We know that we are called to be a light, um, which will eradicate that hatred. The hard thing is that we are also taught at the same time, just as we talked about, um, to bring peace unto all of God's creations. And so what I've tried to think about in my life is how can we be intolerant of intolerant ideals or actions, but at the same time, always being tolerant of the creations of God's image, aka us humans here on earth. And doing that at the same time is not always easy. Uh, how can we look someone in the eye and say, I don't stand for what you believe in because it's hateful, but at the same time, I'm going to love you as best as I can as a creation of God. So that, that's one of the things that I was thinking about uh, through this conversation here. Very powerful, Ethan. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. And I think um, here we see the challenge of living to this Jewish virtue of being strong, standing up against evil, you know, combating hate and injustice, and being road face shalom, people who are still able to, um, amidst all of that work against hate and evil, to still be pursuers of peace. And part of that, as you said, is seeing the good even within those who were combating. In, in an age of polarization, it's very easy to be like, these are the good guys, these are the bad guys. Um, but the world is more complicated than that. And um, I mean, that's, I mean, one of the most troubling things in, in the show, I mean, amidst a billion other troubling things, is that these people who were like gassing people and putting them in crematoria were then like kissing their children, you know, uh, goodnight, like sitting down for dinner and, and reading sweet stories to their kids. Like people who are capable of the most atrocious things are also capable of like sweet, beautiful things. And that's, um, that's one of the realities of today as well. And that should give us also pause. Where are we complicit in, potentially complicit in some really, you know, dangerous stuff, even while we're a part of beautiful things in our lives? Can I just jump in and say one thing though? I completely 100% agree on, with you about thinking about what we're complicit in. Yeah. Yeah. So. Thank you. Yeah, good. So thank you. So thank you. And so, um, yeah. And sometimes we think we're not complicit in violence because we're not doing physical violence, but actually there's systems of violence that we in some ways are supporting um, that. And that's complicated. And also in the name of peace, people advocate all kinds of things. Think about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. We know Jews who in the name of peace say we should be as aggressive and forceful as possible because that is the only pathway towards peace, to be strong. We know those who say only by giving land will we have peace. Those who say only by giving humanitarian aid, only through diplomacy, 
right? Only through multinational, you know, engagement, right? And all in the name of peace, people advocate very different things or people who advocate for peace in America. Some people say peace means my part, my political party wins. We get what we want, right? No, right, right, as, as is chanted at rallies, no justice, no peace. There's no peace until there's justice, right? And so other people mean by peace that we're all going to be friends. Like we're going to, you know, and so this is really complicated in the name of peace. Uh, the, the, the word is so elusive. The word is so elusive. Okay. Um, we might have time for one or two more comments. Questions? Just a comment. I'm, I'm in Ottawa at the moment and at Par in Parliament Hill, it's the Peace Tower. So I just thought that's a really nice thing to share. Awesome. So friends, we, we, we naturally gravitated towards the most intense conversations around pursuing peace, but bracketing the things that we don't have to uh, or probably won't engage in directly so much, such as global conflicts, even though we like to discuss them and read about them, um, such as some of the worst atrocities of, of modernity. Um, we in our own local spaces, in our synagogues, in our local Jewish communities, in our families, we have, uh, we, we have conflicts in our, in our, in our, um, in our social groups, we have conflicts and we can have to choose whether to be on the side of kind of adding fuel to the flame because we think that conflict, um, is kind of either exciting or interesting or, um, or worth fighting out or whether we actually want to be productive agents of helping to bring peace to 10 situations to, to homes and, and to friendships. Um, and of course, peace is not the only value. It's balanced with, uh, with many others. But this is one of the most commonly repeated words in our tradition, this, this, uh, this word of shalom. It's one that we pray for, we sing about, and we don't just think God brings peace, but that we have to be um, pursuers of peace ourselves. So um, thank you for joining. I look forward to next week talking about random acts of kindness before we get to what we often think of as the opposite of Road Faith Shalom, which is Road Faith Emmet, pursuers of truth. Have a great day. See you soon. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Valley Beit Midrash podcast. Remember that you can join our email list at valleybeitmidrash.org to stay up to date on new programs, learning opportunities, and more ways to stay connected. If you enjoyed learning with us today, support our work by making a donation at valleybeitmidrash.org slash donate. Join us next time as we continue to work together to build a better world. Thanks for listening.